welcome to episode 8 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and host of this podcast. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com and for information about the podcast as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week's signals are returned to the regular format as an old role-playing friend of mine, Farrell Fosterlinum, goes inside the role-player studio. For any questions about the game or arising from the podcast, you can contact me, Daniel, at hazardgaming.com. So without further ado, hi Farrell, how's it going? Yeah, good, thanks Daniel. How are you? I'm doing just fine, as I usually say. Uh, When I say just fine, I mean like I'm just on the good side of fine. I've got a long weekend coming up, Good Friday and Easter Monday. As it yep, out. yep, looking forward to that. Yeah, for sure, there's nothing like a few extra days off. I just actually got back from spring break as well, so just the way the school year lined up, I had a week off and then I've got four days of school and then I've got another four days off, so there's nothing oh, wrong nice. with that, right? Anyway, so getting right into it, how long have you been a role player? I think it started when I was about uh, 15 in high school, so that's about 20 years on and off. And, and how did you get started in it? Um... There was a guy in my first year of high school that I met in my cornet class, and uh, basically we took an instant dislike to each other, but uh, fast forward a couple of years, his name's Dave, and um, somehow or other we became best mates and found we had sort of similar interests, and uh, he offered to run a game for me and a few other friends just in the quadrant at lunchtime. I think from memory it was uh, just basic red box D&D, and uh, yes, yeah, just started from there. I'm fascinated by the idea of there being a, a cornet class, that there were so many musicians <laughs> in your school that, that, uh, that they had one specifically for cornet players, but uh, I guess it was just band in general. Yeah, our class um, basically were forced to learn musical instruments where Dave actually had an interest in music I didn't, oh, which is okay. probably one of the reasons that we didn't get on at first. Oh, I was going to actually ask you what it was, because anybody that's uh, read the book carefully, uh, Dave... Is, uh, refers to David, who's one of the people in the acknowledgements, one of the original playtesters of the uh, of the game, and I'm actually hoping when he gets back from vacation, I can get him onto the podcast here, and we can talk a little about a little bit about uh, his experiences in role playing, and also his the first run through that uh, we did of of Victoria. So you've been playing for 20 years. So uh, what do you play now? Um, well, I've actually had a bit of a break since Christmas, but um, before that, we were playing. Uh, D&D 4th edition and um, quite a bit of L5R and um, just recently uh, sort of discovered Fiasco or rediscovered it. We had one session a while ago that was okay but didn't really work right but we had a session about two weeks ago and it was just amazing. It was really quite an epiphany for me as far as role playing and um, just on this past weekend we had a game of... um, uh, basic uh, red box D and D again, which uh, was I think it was intended to be the start of a campaign, but it actually ended up in a total party kill in the first encounter, which was actually quite funny. It sounds like a quite a what a wide variety going from fourth back to first. Now, have you um, heard anything about the new uh, edition of Dungeons and Dragons? No, I'm really interested to see where they take it because um, I like some of the things that they've done with Fourth, but I think it's getting too far away from role playing and more into like a, a tactical combat simulation. And I'd like to see it taken back a notch to even back sort of towards First Edition, where it was, the rules were much simpler and not about moving miniatures around the board. Yeah, that was the impression that I got. I saw some people playing 4th edition at Gen Con this year and also at Origins. And for reasons uh, which I can't really 
um, figure out. I really like wargaming, like uh, simulated battles from the past, and and I also quite like uh, Warhammer and, um, and and 40k. But for whatever reason, miniatures and role playing together always left me cold. I was never really interested in that. And when I saw people playing Fourth Edition, and you know with the miniatures and they were, they were really being very careful with where their characters went, I sort of thought that doesn't seem a lot like role-playing to me. And, and one of the things that uh, I wanted Victoria to not be was, was, a, was a game like that, and that's why uh, there's not really any serious reference to range of this and, and how far you have to be to do this, that, and the other thing. I think there's only one or maybe two references to that in the whole rule book. So um, you found that it was uh, that there's really... A, quite a serious barrier to role playing, or has it just happened to be the way that it's turned out for you so far? It could be just a group, but uh, I mean, a lot of us are MMO players, so um, a lot of us actually quite like that kind of role playing occasionally. But it does sort of detract from the role playing itself. Like, you'd have a combat. We've got a, normally we role play with four or five people, and one combat can take the whole evening. And um, it it doesn't leave a lot of room for narrative as well. Like, your abilities are, I'll move five squares, I'll stand behind this guy so I can flank him, I'll use this power, and I swing and miss, or swing and hit, and do so many hit points of damage. It doesn't, it's not narrative combat anymore. It's just not enough time for it. Yeah, I, I see what you mean, and that, that's uh, something that... Um I don't. One of one of the previous guests was was talking about was the uh, was that you get into combat and it can take you know a good the lion's share of the game and and that's great if you like that sort of thing. But um, if you're rather more interested in the role playing side, or you get enough of the tactical combat from perhaps your MMOs or you play 40k or Warhammer or you know any of those type of games, then when I come to role playing myself uh, and for you uh, as well by the sound of things, you want a game that has a little bit more narrative, a little less emphasis on that. So, so yeah, so yeah. I haven't really heard anything about that with, with 5th edition um, myself, but uh, maybe somebody who's, uh, who's listening in might want to come on and tell us a bit about it if they know a little more, maybe some inside information. Okay, well, I think that sets up nicely for the, uh, for the core of our Inside the Role Player Studios questions. Most people will have a good idea of where you're coming from. So... The first question, other than Victoria, of course, what's your uh, favourite rule book or supplement? I think it'd probably be um, the Great Clan supplement for Legends of the Five Rings and its predecessor, uh, Way of the Scorpion in particular. I like um, the whole the world of, of Rokugan in the, in the system. And in particular, I like the Scorpion Clan when I play games board games, card games, whatever, I, I tend to gravitate towards the um, the factions that are sort of underhanded and tricky and... Uh, Much like yourself. You know, well, yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. I'd probably say something about my character that I don't really want to know. But, yeah, the, the Scorpion Clan... I'm even joking, though of course, Farrell. I haven't found you be to be underhanded <laughs> or sneaky. Or maybe you're so good at being underhanded and sneaky that I don't realise that you're being underhanded and sneaky and you're this... Well, that's the trick, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, when, when I play Scorpion Clan, I always found it very difficult to, to sort of bring that across without coming across as like a cartoon moustache-twirling villain. Right. But something the, uh, the Great Clans book did was 
almost explicitly state how to play a scorpion in a group, and it was quite different to what I first thought. And it's more like playing a like somebody from The Godfather, really. You're um, the way you do it is that you are best friends to people. You you help them in things that they can't deal with themselves because of honour reasons or what have you. And so you do all the dirty work for them. Like, for example, um, we had to prove ourselves to a, a daimyo before going out into the Shadowlands, and one of our group uh, failed in that endeavour. So I set up a duel with him, and I intentionally lost so that he looked good. I became his friend, so he owed me. And, yeah, so... I like that kind of play style. And you found that the the book sort of spelt it out in a way that you hadn't considered. Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't like plotting against the other characters in your party, which was sort of where I originally thought the scorpion would go. But it was how to be the best friend so that they owe you, so that you can you have something over them. Right. Yeah, as you say, I think that uh, it sounds a bit like a. You know, Machiavellian sort of idea, like you want to, you've really got to think about the long game, right? You've got to try and set up all, get all these ducks in a row, so when you go to make your your big move, you can uh, you can rip, yeah, exactly. rip the rug out from underneath them. Yeah, that's right. So that after a while, you can lean on them and say, I need you to cast a vote for this particular guy or something. You don't have to tell them why, but because they owe you a favour, they're obliged to do it. Right. And do you find that you like that type of, I know that you've said that you gravitate towards that type of character, but do you do you like that type of game as well, where it's a bit uh, sneaky and a bit underhanded, and the game is is more about the character interaction than it is about the action? Because it sounds like, you know, with that type of thing, it requires there to be a fair amount of uh, room for the sort of exploring your character and the motivations and goals and so forth. Yeah, I think it would actually works better and and sort of a new new wave of role playing games like Fiasco and Blood and Honor, where it's more collaborative and you can set up. Um, situations like that much easier than than dealing with it through your GM. Right, yeah, that was one of the things that uh, Sean from episode four was saying, is that uh, he, the, at his role-playing table or in the role-playing groups that he's in, uh, there's a lot of collaboration between the, the players that allows for those types of stories to unfold. And I was when I was thinking about that... Um, it strikes me that that type of game requires a fairly high level of maturity from the the players in the game. Do you think that uh, your tastes in the type of game have changed as you've uh, got older, or do you think that that was always the type of thing that you enjoyed and you just had to wait for the types of games that you wanted to play to actually be written? Yeah, I think it's really more the latter. I think I've always wanted to have that kind of... um, uh, you know, meta plot in the background, backstabbing, stuff like that. But games like D&D didn't really um, allow it unless your GM was really in on it. And then, then there was a lot of, like, uh, you know, note passing or held back information. But with the latest games coming out, I think it, it makes it a lot easier to facilitate that kind of um, internal conflict. Right. Yeah, I think that... Uh Games where there is a lot of uh, development available for characters, at least for me, is far more 
interesting and more engaging if you if you really feel that you're taking on this this role and you have the opportunity to explore all its various facets then it also creates more memorable um, experiences I think um, but yeah definitely the the new sort of wave of role playing games seems to be that you know that emphasis is on character and on generating mm. great, great stories and at the same time there's the divergence because of the big the big uh, the big game, um, Dungeons and Dragons, is like you were mentioning before with the with the miniatures and so forth, is going in the completely the opposite direction. And when they said they were going to address the people that they'd lost along the way, I'm really quite curious to see whether they've, you know, are trying to get more role playing out of it, or whether they're just trying to allow for the characters to take on more different skills and so forth, and they're still going away from role playing. I, I don't know if you ever read about Gary Gygax's original thoughts on the role-playing aspect of role-playing. Oh, no, I haven't, no. Yeah, he was not a big fan of the role-playing part of it. Now, I don't remember exactly, but uh, there is a link to the article in the blog somewhere. But, uh, yeah, he didn't want that type of stuff to get in the way. Like he, he felt that it was more along the lines of the way that Dungeons & Dragons is right now than oh, okay. say, Fiasco or any of the other games that encourage character, genera- uh, character development, I should say. So That's interesting. To... Uh, when I was playing D&D Redbox the other night, I mean, some of it is absolutely horrible, like trying to remember how Thacko works. And one of my friends played a, a magic user. He had no armor, two hit points. No, he couldn't choose his own spell, so he had um, floating disc, which was next to useless. <laughs> <laughs> but the actual combat, I thought, was much more engaging because it was so stripped back i thought i'd actually prefer to play Redbox with heavily tweaked but you know i think it allows more narrative than than current dnd and i was actually quite surprised at how much i sort of enjoyed it so yeah i might have a look into that again yeah well if you've only got two hit points and you've got a floating disc as your spell (laughs) then if you want to get any enjoyment out of the game at all then it really falls back on the role-playing R-O-L-E um, to get any enjoyment out of the game. So, so yeah, well, let, yeah. Us, let me know how that, uh, that goes. I'd be interested to see. Because although I've run some first edition Dungeons & Dragons relatively recently, it hasn't been anything of my own creation. It's been a fill-in for the night. You know, people go around and kill goblins and get treasure and we make fun of each other. But um, <laughs> I've never actually tried to write a first edition game um, since I've, I've played other games. So it would be, uh, yeah, I might look into that myself, actually. Good idea. So um, my second question is, and this is really the flip side of the first part, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's badly written. It could just be like a, that it's wronged you in some random way or, or it was connected with some traumatic experience in your life. And so as a result, it always brings up that association. Yeah, I had a few choices here. I'm tempted to say D&D 4th because of the reasons I've already stated. And some of my friends suggested Fatal. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. But it has, like, tables for anal circumference. And um, there's a thing, apparently, if you have very low intelligence, you get a bonus to strength because it's retard strength. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the South Park of role-playing games, apparently. But I don't know all that much about it. So my actual choice is um, D20 Deadlands because the original Deadlands 
uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that either. It was a, a Western-based game with the steampunk elements and sort of um, a few spiritual, uh, supernatural elements as well. But the system was a really nice marriage of of the, the setting as well. Like you use uh, a deck of cards and poker values to determine a lot of stuff. Right. And I'm not sure entirely how effective it was. I think it worked pretty well. But I thought it was really unique and really flavorful. And to take that system and reduce it to D20, I think, is kind of a travesty. It's homogenizing it and you know sucking all the nutrients out of it and just leaving something sort of beige. Mm. That's the thing with those types of uh, those types of games um, is that by trying to shoehorn it to a system uh, which is generic it, you know just from the, from the name itself you know it doesn't allow for any of those quirky or interesting things to to come through because the system itself needs to be so flexible that it doesn't allow for that and that leads a little bit into the idea of how important a system is um, for making a game that's enjoyable, and we'll get to that uh, later on. But if you're interested in Deadlands, uh, Sean has got some uh, has got a, a hack that he wrote for um, for Deadlands. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. If I remember, if I remember correctly, because I don't know a lot about the system myself, but uh, he wrote a hack for a different system that has a similar uh, that has a similar background. I'll have to check into it to see if that's correct, but. Um, if you like that sort of Wild West steampunk type thing, then that, that's something that you might yeah, want to check out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, SeanNittner.com, uh, he's written a bit, uh, and I think he's posted that, or maybe he's in the process of in the process of posting it, but you could even drop him a line. I'm sure he'd have a, a preview that you could uh, take a look at. Yeah, so, that sounds good. If you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? I think I'd probably end up as a player. I've, I like the idea of GMing, but... I just can't really do it. I find that um, I find it quite draining trying to track the plot, the NPCs, what the players are doing. And after a couple of weeks, I find that I'm just emotionally drained pretty much. And um, I also tend to get quite flustered when I'm the um, sort of the centre of attention and have to set the pace and everything. So I think ultimately I'd probably end up as a player. Right. I hadn't considered that before, that uh, being a GM could exacerbate any feelings you had about being on the, being on the spot. And, and do you think that part of the problem is that, you know, considering the job that you do and how meticulous you have to be in, in doing that, uh, you probably gravitated towards it um, for that reason? And do you find that that's perhaps why you have trouble keeping track of everything or trying to keep track of everything in a, in a role-playing game? I think I'm just generally scatterbrained in general. I won't say what your job is. I won't say what your job is then. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, what do you think the perfect number is to uh, for a role-playing game? I actually quite like um, one GM and four players. Um, I see the real appeal in three players, the dynamics, and I think... That probably is ideal, but with four players, you've also got pretty good dynamics without becoming too bloated. But um, one thing I find with my particular group is that because of different commitments, there's often one player that can't show up. So with four players, if one doesn't show up, you've still got three players, which is a perfectly workable dynamic. Right. So that's, that's the tenth sort of group that we tend to try and get. 
Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought of it from that angle before, but if you're only going to have three players in a group, if, if one of them is away, then you're really, uh, you're really out of luck. I guess it depends on uh, how reliable the people in the group are and whether they're prepared to make it a commitment or not. Um, yeah, that's for role-playing games, that's really the, the Achilles heel, I guess. Of, in, my, in the book, I talk about people that are sort of just going along for something to do, but those, although those people are great to have in your group, um, they can be a little bit of an Achilles heel in, in some respects because they're not all that invested in the game. And as a result, other things can become more important. And if you've only got three players and one of them is, you know, like it's not really that important to me whether I go or not, I just want to do something, then yeah. that can really, that can create a problem. So, yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that before, but you're right, having that extra person is, uh, is good. So if one person can't make it, you can, you can still get that dynamic and, and still go ahead. Yeah, I find that it's, if you've got a good group and two players can be a phenomenal thing, but it's, it's a lot harder, I think, than with three players where you've got that, just a bit different dynamic. So what for you is a standard game session? When do you play and for how long? Oh, we currently try and play every every week or every two weeks. Um, right now, it's, it's actually very... Um, it's not working out <laughs> all that well. We have trouble getting a GM that can hold a campaign together for a long time. So we really do a, a lot of one-offs. Um, like I say, we've just recently played D&D, which has turned out to be a one-off, even though it wasn't intended to, and uh, a good game of Fiasco before that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's actually pretty hard for us right now to string a campaign together, but hopefully we're going to get that sorted now that sort of everything's quieted down. Right, so do you play... Um on a, on a weeknight or on a weekend night or do you play a weekend day or how long is a session usually uh, normally normally Sunday nights from about 6 o'clock until about 11 o'clock p.m. Um, we'd actually probably like to do it a bit longer than that but because of um, marital commitments or whatever it normally starts around 6. Alright so you play for about 4 or 5 hours and uh, and usually on a Sunday night okay. Yeah, the trouble is that we normally spend the first hour or so just gas bagging, you know, so we don't actually get into it until a good hour into it. Yeah, that's the thing that, um, that as you get, well, I find that as you get older, you get, whereas when you're younger and you have fewer commitments, you have a lot of different areas of, of interest and, and your role-playing group is one of the things that, that you do, but I find that, you know, with a job and with a family you really only have one or maybe two uh, social interactions a week, so it's really difficult to just to show up and start role-playing right now and then just, just role-play through because that, that catching up with people at the, uh, at the start, you know, as the older you get, the fewer friends that you get, right, at least the fewer people that you, yeah, you associate exactly. with. And so that social time before the game actually starts is... You know, increasingly important in terms of, you know, touching base with your uh, with your with your friends, particularly for somebody who's not big into Facebook, such as uh, such as myself. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Hmm. So, what do you think about males playing females? I think absolutely. Um, as long as it works for the player and for the group. So, as far as the player goes. Um, 
I think playing a female is great if it adds a nuance to your character and you're not just falling into um, terrible stereotypes. Like, I know some gamers that have played females in the past just flirt with everybody they come across, like some sort of, I don't know, fantasy wish fulfillment because of their own social ineptitudes or something. (laughs) But if if you can get past that and it actually adds something to your character, then I think absolutely. But the flip side is, of course, like you've mentioned before, if you're playing with a group that are going to play on that just a little too much and flirt with your character and give it unwanted attention, then yeah, (laughs) best to stay away from it. But well, like with my um, group, we're all, you know, mature now. We're all in long-term relationships or happily married or whatever. So if we play a female, it's normally for a reason and normally works fine, yeah. Right. So do you, and I guess by your previous um, answer regarding whether you like to be a GM or not, um, you've probably answered this already, but do you um, or should GMs fudge dice rolls? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I think it's... Uh, pretty fundamental tool of GMs but it's for a particular type of game like D&D I think where the focus is on like tactical combat and in that type of game I think a lot of the fun comes from overcoming uh, challenging encounters and using every means at your disposal and uh, I think the tension is derived from like the attrition of your party's health and abilities so the perfect outcome for the players is to beat the encounter, but just by the skin of their teeth. So possibly with one or two heroes going down um, in dramatic fashion. And the role of the GM, uh, I think, in in those kind of games is it's not adversarial. It's to create a, a balanced, challenging encounter for the party to overcome. And um, if you've tweaked it wrong so that you're you know, absolutely smashing the players or or the, the flip side where they're getting through it too easily, then it's, it's not um, satisfying for them. So I think that's one of the fundamental tools for a GM to sort of tweak on the fly. There are others like um, adding minions or, or what have you. I think D&D does a pretty good job of, of how to create encounters and to tweak it on the fly. So, but yeah, I think, I think it's fine. In a narrative-based game, obviously, you don't need to uh, fudge roles. You can just add whatever element you like. Right. Yeah, Dungeons & Dragons lends itself a little bit more to uh, a sort of slow wearing down um, and a way to constantly be checking against, uh, is it too hard, is it too easy? And like you said, yeah. changing, changing things on the fly. And, and when you diverge from... Uh, those type of games to the sort of the second generation of games where you had skills and percentiles, like say, for example, Rollmaster. That's really the situation where you've got the, you've got a real possibility for for mayhem. You can have a single roll which kills somebody, whereas that's not the case yep. in Dungeons and Dragons. At least I'm not all that familiar with Fourth Edition, but I'm pretty sure that still one blow um, is unlikely to kill anybody. Um, if the, no, if in the first edition it was, but uh, in fourth edition everybody's pretty um, pretty solid. Um, I think for those kind of games, it's almost like an MMO mindset. Like in World of Warcraft, when I've played that, um, the the best uh, experiences come when you're like when we fought uh, the Lich King Arthas. That was 
you know, taking down a a major villain of the piece, and we threw ourselves against that for a week. And when we finally did it, it was half the party was still alive, and we literally did it in the very last second that that we had available to us. We actually beat him, and the elation was just an absolute high. I've never felt anything like it while gaming. And it was even better because it was shared among 10 people. Right. And I think and that's what you're kind of aiming for and, and that kind of role-playing where where the dice rolls matter. Right. Yeah, that's that was one of the things that uh, I noticed about Dungeons & Dragons when I got up to about uh, characters around 5th, 6th and 7th level uh, is that it was the, the sense of danger and consequently the the feeling of success when in, when defeating something was not you know you didn't have that same uh, feeling that death was around the corner any moments it was always a slow it was always a slow grind so you yeah, know, you'd, yeah. you'd, you'd, you'd take some damage and then you'd get a cure like wounds you do this and you that and the other thing and and no matter what you always sort of stayed not quite full but you know not really empty and so nothing was really going to was really going to trouble you so I found that a bit of a turn-off, and that was one of the reasons why I was always very resistant of starting a, a game with my character at fifth or sixth or seventh or tenth, whatever level, because you know it got a little bit away from that uh, character development, and also you got to the point where nothing was really that much of a problem. If you came up against a dragon, then chances are, you know, if you failed your saving throw, you were going to die until you got to a really, really high level. So aside from a dragon with his dragon breath, there was really nothing that could uh, cause that much of an instant problem. And so there was not that sense of, you know, reward uh, balanced against the sense of impending doom. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that if you want to try and get some enjoyment out of, uh, you know, a role-playing game, you have to at least have some kind of feeling that you're not, just sort of going through the, going through the motions of uh, you know, rolling dice, rolling dice, kill that monster, get better, kill that monster. So, so yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think we can agree that the um, that the important thing is to balance your combats up so that if you are going to play a game where you've got a lot of combat, like you say, fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, then you've really got to be very careful to, to pitch your combat so that it's not such an easy combat that you get no sense of satisfaction or such a hard combat that nobody's going to survive. And that's, and that's you know, I think probably that goes for every game, but particularly so for that that type of role-playing game that you've got to be much more careful with your encounters. Yeah, I think also if you're going to fudge rolls in that type of game, you have to have a pretty good poker face because if you tip your hand that you are you know, tweaking the encounters on the fly, then you're actually sort of defeating the purpose. You're sort of taking away from the player's satisfaction of overcoming that encounter. Yes. And that goes... Uh, I'll go a little bit further when it comes to fudging dice rolls. Some people say, you know, absolutely not. I absolutely will not fudge dice rolls. And, and that's fine. It's, it's not the way that I prefer to do it. But at the same time, I think that fudging a dice roll is one way that the game master you know changes things as you say on the fly to keep things interesting but if you're going to not fudge dice rolls but subtract an ogre or add an ogre or make this encounter a little bit different or make that encounter a little bit different to my mind there's no difference in that than there is in fudging dice rolls Uh, if you're going to if you're going to fudge your story in one way or another then to my mind it makes no difference 
what way you go about doing it. And and you shouldn't feel bad about that anyway. I mean, no. it, it, it's just, you know, it's just a... Uh, you know, it's just a fact of the game that it's artificial and in order for it to be captivating and enjoying, it's really on the game master to make sure that you know everything is, is meaningful. And going back to something that I discussed a couple of times previously, um, how do you feel about the null result from a dice roll? I talked with, it, uh, with Sean about it and also with Ethan, I think, last week, but this idea that every dice roll should have, should have meaning. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that is important. Uh, you don't want, um, yeah, you don't want any dead air. You want everything to have some sort of purpose. If if you're just rolling dice and it's not adding to the drama, then it's not adding to the satisfaction, the fun uh, factor of the game. When it comes to a in a captivating game, like you say, dead air is anathema to the whole experience. You know, this and nothing happens. This and nothing happens. That and nothing happens. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't bring anything. So to a degree, uh, that goes along with the system as well, and, and we will get to that. So um, what's the best and or most inspiring role-playing uh, film or TV show? It doesn't have to be about role-playing, but something which has really piqued your curiosity or has really got you going in terms of like, uh, a type of game that you want to play. Uh, we're spoiled for choice now. There's heaps of uh, really good um, shows on TV and in films. Um, I think for me it's probably Firefly, uh, not including Serenity, though, um, because in the the protagonists of Firefly, you've got your quintessential adventuring party amongst the other characters. You've got your your brains, your brawn, your beauty. You've got your spiritual guide and your medic. And... As far as the TV show goes, every uh, episode, it's basically a heist format. They're, they're trying to steal something or trying to get away with something, and pretty much everybody they come across is trying to screw them in some fashion. And I think it, it really sums up um, role-playing quite well in that regard. Um, the, the movie Serenity, although I really enjoyed it, was a little bit different because it by necessity, it had uh, lots of reveals and resolutions, and it had to get away from the heist format to something a bit wider. Right. So, that so it wasn't so much the um, the content as the format that you that you felt was less conducive to being a role playing game, or that is to be incorporating in a role playing game. Yeah. Um, oh, the other thing I really enjoyed about Firefly was it had the the basic evil empire but it also had a much uh, darker deeper enemy in the reavers like a kind of a mythological um enemy that everybody was scared of but sort of only hinted at whereas in serenity they basically had to reveal the the history and and who they are and what the reavers are right and yeah i like having that mythological sort of dark terrible, terrible evil that's sort of in, always in the background but always an ever-present threat. Right. That was one of the strengths I felt of, of Mage was that there were these four different sides in the, in the conflict, the Ascension War. You had the tradition uh, mages who were you know, ostensibly the good guys and then you had the technocracy who were the bad guys. But 
then marauders aside, you had the Nefandi who were the evil guys, right? It was uh, it was real Castle Grayskull type thing. You, know, you had He Man <laughs> right. and Skeletor, and then you had I forget what was the name of the orange guy, but he was he was evil. Like like um, <laughs> Skeletor was bad, but this other guy was was evil. Um, and I really liked that. I really liked the, that uh, that aspect of the just like in uh, a role playing. Like if I'm putting a role playing group together, or the three is a magical number for for players. I think that three is also a good number for the um, the main sort of groups in your story. Um, in uh, Victoria, there's you know you've got the the players, uh, and then you've got the uh, Eminence Gris. Um, and or Eminence Gris, as my father, who's a French teacher, would tell me to uh, to pronounce it. Um, and but it sounds better as Eminence Gris if you ask me. But anyway, um, and then there are the uh, the Bow Street Runners. And when I was putting the game together, I talked quite a bit with uh, Chris about that that aspect about you know what it was that was you know what it was the strengths were of having three different groups um, in opposition. So that there was no real um, good guys and no real bad guys, and, and and that goes a little bit to keeping your character interesting, keeping your villains interesting, by having a complex set of characteristics for your bad guys or your good guys or your somewhere in the middle guys. It, I think, it helps to keep things helps to keep things interesting, and that's why one of the one of the parts of putting together a, a character. Um, to play in Victoria was, you know, picking a, a floor of some kind that was going to uh, make things a little bit more difficult for you. Having a reward for that type of thing um, and then encouraging people to play it just makes everything just that little bit more interesting. And I've already said that I don't not like Firefly, but I just have a real trouble with, with science fiction. Um, and But by the sound of things, that having, that, having three groups... Uh, as main parts of the story made things a little bit more interesting for you. It added an extra element. Yeah. I think sci-fi is, uh, it's not, I think it's sci-fi you could actually enjoy. It's not high tech in, in that way. It's, I mean, the, the fact that they're in a spaceship is almost incidental to the fact that it's really just a Western. Mm. And, uh, I, I think that's one of the reasons that it, it actually fits the role playing bill quite nicely. Um, like you can't solve everything with a sonic screwdriver or reversing the polarity of the neutron flow. Everything's solved by brawling or or outsmarting your enemy. Right. Yeah, that, that, I, I've watched. I think probably two thirds of the of the first episode, and and there was the spaceship to start with, and and then I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like this. And then they were sort of on a dusty planet. I thought, oh, that might be right. That's kind of looked like, looks a bit like Tatooine, so that'll be okay. And then there was some more spaceship stuff, and then that was that was the end of it for me. And I and I, uh-huh. and, I and I and everybody says that it's fabulous, and I'll I'll, I'll give it a try. I'm sort of working my way through the wire at the moment, and I expected I expected the wire to to blow the top of my head off as this this awesome drama, but um, I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say that, that the wire is not good. It is it is good, but it's not captivating me in the way that I was as I was hoping that it would. But um, anyway, I'll, I guess I'll give Firefly another shot. But um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough sell. Um, so <laughs> if you could become a character in a role playing game, what would it be? And that doesn't mean like you can play any character in any role playing game that you wanted, because I mean you could do that anyway. But if you suddenly found yourself 
in a role-playing setting and you were a character in that role-playing setting, what character would that be in and what setting? I'd have to be a magic user of some kind because that's the other thing that I'm always drawn to. I love the idea of magic and especially um, magic systems that are a little more open. Um, so you can use basic effects to to great um, results. Like in 3.5, one of my favourite spells was um, Grease because it wasn't just a, a combat spell. You could use it for all sorts of tricky, nefarious purposes. And that's, that's another thing that I don't like about 4th edition D&D is that the spells are, are really only combat-based and they're the only spells that you have. So I'd probably have to pick something like Mage where you know you can just come up with anything you like as far as magic and um, just go with it. And so in a contemporary setting or would you like a quasi-medieval setting? Or um, I tend to... Favor uh, older settings. Yeah, uh, you discussed before the you know how cell phones sort of truncate drama in current and modern day role playing systems. Or I have that ability to do that, and mm. I, I like. Yeah, I, I tend to gravitate more towards the low tech but high magic kind of uh, milieu. Right. right. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I haven't answered this question and I won't answer it today, but, uh, oh no, I have answered it actually. Yeah, I would think that, uh, yeah, I wanted to be a Fox Mulder type character in a, in a, uh, Project Twilight game, um, just because I like the idea of the, I'm not, I'm not really a big fan of magic. I don't, I don't not like it, but I find that it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a level playing field when there's, when there's magic involved. Mm. Uh, in low fantasy, then, it, it certainly can be, but in Dungeons and Dragons type games, like you mentioned, you, know, you had the magic user that had uh, the floating disc and two hit points, so he's very he's got <laughs> he's got no no power at all, right? And then he gets to fifth level, and then all of a sudden he's got a fireball, and now any problem just becomes a target for a fireball. And then when he gets even higher than that, then nothing is a problem anymore, and all the the fighters and, and so forth become you know, surplus to requirement. So to a degree, I suppose, it's how the Dungeon Master puts the game together. But I always found that magic, there was no, there's no real solid way to to rein it in. Um, yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah, yeah. I like that there's uh, Paradox and Mage, and, and my favourite game that I ever played in was a, a game that was, was high magic. But... As a game master, I find it difficult to um, I find it difficult to try and keep that all in check and keep the the simple characters as being involved rather than sort of as as bystanders. And, and one of the other things that happens when you get magic in there or really super powerful things that are that are from the supernatural is that they they stop being um, Adversaries and become puzzles. I think in mm. the, in in, the, in my book I talk about um, you know a super powerful vampire. If, if you go for a high supernatural element and it, and it's great fun, but if you go for uh, an adversary that is you know that super powerful vampire, then 
then they are a puzzle. They're not an adversary, and you're never going to go. You're never going to end up going toe to toe with them. So, yeah, it, it changes the the nature of the game. The characters become less and less important the more magic that there is in the game. Unless, of course, they're magic users, in which case they become more and more important. And you know, why wouldn't they just control the mind of the president or, or something like that? But yeah, it does get that kind of yeah out of hand. Like I say, I, I tend to like the the actual low level magic and D and D, the utility spells like uh, grease or prestidigitation. Stuff like that that you can, it may seem um, sort of innocuous at first, but if you use it to, in inventive ways, it actually, you know, becomes quite useful. And I, I always enjoy that kind of thing, where just using it for unexpected ways. I, I love that kind of stuff. Right. And do you uh, have you played Han then? Uh, no, not a lot. I've played a little bit of it, like. Uh, like I was saying, when I first started role-playing, um, started off on, on D&D, and then um, Dave sort of did the, the drug dealer's hook on us where it's like, okay, you're hooked on that, you like that? Okay, here's Han. And um, so we played that for a little bit, and I actually quite enjoyed it because I like, I don't know, percentile-based systems always make more sense to me. Uh, just the way my mind works, I always like to know the percentages. Um, but I never really got my head around the magic system for that, and I never really got my head around the magic system for mage either. Right. But um, yeah, that's part of the the. But it's part of the charm, I think, of, of mage. I don't really know much about Han, but uh, but that's one of the joys of of mage is that it was all it was always pretty loose. And as a game master, it really and going back to what we were talking about earlier, it really forced you to get a grip on the way that you felt that the magic could work and then devise encounters so that you could pit the magic against against the magic. And if you didn't have a good grip on the way that you thought it worked as a game master or a storyteller as it is in uh, White Wolf, then, you know, as you say, you know, it could be a complete the whole experience could be extremely confusing for your players and for yourself to the point where there was no, you know, there was no, co- there was no consistency from one thing to the next. So, I, I mean, for me anyway, I felt they did a fairly good job of describing some of the some of the combats. But um, I was part of the back in the olden days when you used to subscribe to list servers. There was the White World of Darkness list server. <laughs> and, yeah. and you used to get emails whenever anybody would post that would automatically send you an email and you could read what it was that they had to say and then people would get into arguments by hitting reply to somebody else's somebody else's email and yeah if you wanted to get a good feeling for the multiple different ways that rules could possibly in, be interpreted then that was the uh, that was the place to do it it was really quite it was very difficult to get your your head around it but at the same time, even though there were there's so many different ways that people were interpreting the rules and, and how it was that uh, the game was, was supposed to be played, it really gave you a lot of good training for the way that you wanted the magic system okay. to work. And, and having, having seen it work in all these different ways for different people, it really helped you to get a grip on it. So um, like I often say, one of the best ways to learn something is to, is to teach it. So... If you have to go to the trouble of explaining the way that you something you think something works um, as an argument with somebody else, then that's going to be a, a really good way for you to uh, get a grip on your system. So, as a, a top tip, 
a, uh, a penny red top tip. If you want to get a good grip on how you think your system should work or how you think rules should work, try and find somebody in a forum to get into an argument with. I'm not advocating you being rude, but get into an argument with somebody and then you'll really get to grips with, with how you think that, uh, that something's going to work. But uh, moving on to the uh, next question, um, do you have any dice superstitions? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'll roll dice at the start of the session and pick the ones that roll highest. Um, but I won't roll them too much because you don't want to use up all of the 20s or all of the 6s too early. Um, if they start to roll badly, I'll hurl them across the room and find some new dice. And you know, <laughs> I, th- I think if you're a role player and you don't have those kind of tendencies, there's something weirdly, coldly analytical about yourself. I think, <laughs> I think it's just a natural... That's, uh, that's interesting. You would. That's interesting. You would say that, Farrell, because I guess I'm coldly analytical. I've got no, I've got no feelings about about <laughs> oh, dice, well, dice at all. Like I have not a single dice superstition. Um, and so, yeah. And I, I think I mentioned it in a previous podcast, but um, but at uh, Origins, I. Didn't I, for whatever reason I didn't have dice handy to me, so I just reached over and grabbed a girl's dice, and she was aghast and had to change them immediately because I'd because I'd cursed <laughs> them. But I have no no feelings about that at all, and it surprises me to hear that you have because I don't didn't ever remember that about you. And I was I was sort of going back through my mind um, to all the role playing groups that I played with, and I didn't I don't think I know apart from you now apparently uh, anybody that ever had any dice superstitions that I played with. Like it was never. It was never a thing. I seem to recall that Simon um, had a dice that, of mine that he seemed to like using. It was a pretty old one. I think it might even have been from a red box dice. It was, it was the, the addition of the red box after they just had the little cut-out squares of cardboard um, that in, in an envelope that you used to have to use to, to generate your numbers. But um, he called it his educated dice because whenever it didn't roll the way he wanted to, he would subject it to various types of torture. And he, he seemed certain that it had actually worked, that by torturing it, he was uh, actually teaching it to roll better on the fear that it was going, to be, was going to be hurt. But I don't know if he ever necessarily noticed that in the process of torturing this dice and the ways that he used to orient it, he was actually smashing the corners off the dice so it became a not true dice anymore. And so it did actually roll higher, but it had nothing whatsoever to do with its fear of punishment and everything to do with the fact that he was actually distorting it and knocking its corners off. So no, I, I have no, no dice uh, superstitions at all. And so I'm weird and coldly analytical, but... <laughs> yeah, perhaps I should have vetted that you before have, I... You should, have to, you should have to take me as you find me, Farrell. Um, so um, what's your role-playing elevator pitch, including your go-to example of play for somebody that says, oh, role-playing, that's interesting. Tell me about that. Well, f- for most people, I don't even ever mention role-playing unless I think they are going to get it. So if somebody asks me what I've done, I'll, I'll just say gaming in general when they'll assume it's board gaming or uh, computer gaming. Um, for somebody that I think will get it, I normally try and draw on something that they're familiar with. So if they play um, computer games, RPGs, for example, or um, I was talking to a friend of mine at work the other day, the only person at my work that I've ever talked to role-playing about, and um, this was after that fantastic game of Fiasco that I had. 
And so I was really energised about it the next day and wanted to talk to somebody about it. And he'd done theatre sports in the past, so he had a really good basis of, of where I was coming from. Right. And he also plays computer RPGs, so I was able to just say, you know, it's, it's interactive fiction. Um, in a normal role-playing game, there's one person that sort of dictates the story and the pace of the story, and you just play your character. Um, Fiesco is obviously slightly different in that regard, but yeah, that's that's where I generally come from. Yeah, we in a previous podcast we talked about you know where role playing came from and you know the the, the two ends of the the spectrum, so to speak. You've got the the improv at one end, and you've got the the war gaming at the other. And it sounds like that is it. I don't know if it was a it's a chap or a girl, but um, it sounds like they probably be interested in the fiasco, and that might be the way to lead them them into it do you have have any uh feeling of of shame when uh when somebody's sort of asking you try not to mention role playing or is it purely a i don't want to have to explain this a bit of both actually um it's it's so hard to explain without sounding weird sometimes and uh something i probably should work on but um yeah (laughs) for for the most part i just ignore it and the people that I want to talk to it about, I can talk to. Right. Like uh, most of my friends are role players in right. some regard. Right. Now, when you mentioned that uh, the the improv, um, I just suddenly had a, a thought back to something that I uh, that I uh, something that I, I played when I was uh, in university, and I think you probably would have been the age. Uh, you probably would uh, maybe. You might have heard of it, but do you remember how in an old picture theatre um, a group got together and they ran a thing called The Game and you, ha- you went along and you- it was $5 to get in and you made a character and then they had all these various people playing parts. It was an old, it was an, like I say, it was a, an old theatre and they actually set, made all these sets and then there were people in The Game that were part of this theatre group and they played roles and you had to play a role as well and you went through, do, do you remember that? I, I remember only through sort of secondhand knowledge, and it, it sort of confused me at the time. But uh, I remember sort of being interested in it because I was getting into role playing. Right. But yeah, I never really heard much more about it. Yeah, because it was only on for a week, and I went along twice because I thought it was absolutely superb. And subsequent to that, I haven't really thought about it that often since. But it was abs- whoever it was that put it together did a fabulous job. And I wonder if Dave or maybe Scott even might know about it and I, I might have to get them on Scott perhaps on the show and, and relive some of that because they did such a such a great job um, or if anybody else out there is listening that, that somehow was in Christchurch in about 1995 and uh, and went along to what was called the game then I'd be interested to was, uh, interested to, to hear from you um, so totaling and we touched on this a couple of times before but this is um, something I've asked a couple of people now already. It's a new addition to the, the set of questions that I run through here. But totaling 100, assign per sense to the relative importance of system, GM, and players. Well, for me, it's actually changed quite a lot over over the years that I've been role-playing, especially recently discovering Fiesco, because I always tended towards the um, the sort of tactical combat games with lots and lots of tables and lots of meaty supplements that I could take to work and read. But um, recently I've been playing games like Blood and Honor and and Fiesco itself where it's more like collaborative role-playing. Um, Blood and Honor, I think, has got a really neat system that still has a GM 
but it allows the um, the players to add as much or as little as they want as well. So I think these days I only, I'm only looking for enough system to facilitate the story and possibly a, a, a reasonable combat system. So maybe 40, 40, 20. So 40 for system, 40 for... Oh, oh, sorry, 40, oh, sorry. 20, 20 for system? system? Yeah, and 40 for the GM and the players. Right, and... Can you get by, do you think, with a great GM and ho-hum players or great players and a, a ho-hum GM? Uh, I think... Oh, that's a good question, actually. I think you can get by with some ho-hum players, but I, I think you need a good GM if you're going to have a GM-based system. Um, you can get by with modules and stuff, and that's, that's okay. That's That can be fun in its own right, but... I, even when, like, I've tried to run modules, I've tried to add my own little bits of flavour or um, what I quite like to do when I do try and GM is take a, some work of fiction that I'm really interested in and try and adapt it into the game. Like recently I um, read a, a graphic novel called Leviathan by Ian Edgington and it's sort of set in... Um, it's actually set in sort of Victoria steampunk times and it's on a, a gigantic um, ship that's got uh, basically like Twilight Zone. It's, it's in this never-ending sea, and it's been there for like 20 years. And it's something that I'd like to actually uh, put into a game like perhaps Victoria, I think would work. What a great really. idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I think a GM... Can you can get by with a an average GM if you've got good players, but actually I, re, I really like the latest new wave of collaborative gaming. So that even if there's one weakness, you know everybody can add to the narrative and push it forwards and achieve something wonderful. Right, that was something that I tried to encourage in Victoria is that uh, this idea that if you have a uh, if you roll badly or if you roll well, then there's actually a, an in-game incentive aside from the obvious satisfaction you get from creating something interesting for yourself. But there's actually an in-game uh, element that encourages that type of thing. So if you roll double ones, for example, in Victoria, then if you are the author of your own demise, uh, as is the way I, that I put it in the book, then oh, okay. you actually get, you get plot points um, for describing what it is that, that bad that happens to you. And I, and I found... Um, in playtesting that people actually quite enjoy that like uh, instead of just saying uh, you roll badly and then X bad thing happens to you and people are kind of get sort of I mean nobody likes to, to fail abjectly um, particularly if it's not in an interesting way but by saying okay this happens and you can actually gain some kind of um, advantage in future by describing how things go badly for you I think people actually quite enjoy enjoy that part of it so yeah, absolutely. It's something I've discovered um, recently as well. Like, I've always played role-playing games for the last 20 years of, or so, where basically you're trying to win. But since discovering games like Blood and Honor, um, where you're actually trying to set up dramatic situations for yourself, which might not work out all the best for you, I actually find that a lot more satisfying. Um, there was one memorable game where we... Uh, we're a party of samurai, and there was one villain that um, I took a bit of a shine to, and 
one of the guys in my party was doing his absolute best to kill him, whereas when it came my turn to narrate, I was setting this guy up basically as a recurring villain, so he'd get away from everything that we tried to do. Right. And, yeah, I really enjoyed that kind of dynamic. Yeah, having a having a great villain is, is really important. In my, to my mind, your villain is your plot. And if mm. you've got a good villain with an interesting backstory, then you've really set up a, a strong cornerstone for uh, a game which you can really get your teeth into. Uh, so what was it particularly about the villain that you took a shine to? I can't actually remember, unfortunately. Um, no, I cannot remember. One of the things that I talked about previously was was Hannibal Lecter and why it is that people like him so much. He's got so many odious um, personality traits that it seems <laughs> unlikely that anybody in reality could ever enjoy him. But because role-playing is all about creating your own reality or a reality that's not the same as the one that we experience on a day-to-day basis, it gives you license to like those bad guys and... Um, what are, you, what, are, what are your feelings on Hannibal Lecter? I think he's, he's excellent. Uh, I like villains that have a realistic reason for being villains. I don't like villains that are out to destroy the world or, or take over everything because I don't understand their motivations and I don't think it comes across well. Um, I like... That's okay for mythological uh, overarching villains like gods and demigods and stuff like that. But for your average villain, I like them to have a a real motivation. Like um, I'm reading a webcomic called Order of the Stick recently, and one of the villains I've just introduced, he's basically trying to make the world better, but he's doing it through quite evil means by like torturing people and and imposing fear and, and and setting order like that. And so that kind of villain and where it's a realistic uh, motivation, I always enjoy that. So how do you feel about uh, Alan Rickman's character in Die Hard? Brilliant. He's my favourite villain of, of, of all time. I think he's fantastic. So what about him do you like? Because going back to what you said before, his his megalomania is his thing. He doesn't have any... His um, particular brand of being a bad guy is, you know, he wants power and he wants money, but unlike Hannibal Lecter, who was... And I don't want to... So spoilers here for anybody that hasn't read Hannibal, but um, Hannibal Lecter's... Uh, the genesis of his cannibalism comes from uh, the soldiers that uh, took his family during the Second World War, and that's what sort of turned him on to uh, eating flesh because that's what he had to eat uh, in order to stay to stay alive. He didn't realise that's what he was doing, but that's what started the whole thing off. So, all right, going going along with your um, idea that you know a character that has a, a personality based. Uh, sorry, a historical, uh, their personal history is what informs their future actions um, and not being able to relate to villains as well who are just in it for the money or in it for the power, which doesn't really have any... Well, I mean, I suppose it could have an interesting backstory, but really that's portrayed in, in films um, and certainly not in, in books that I've, that I've read. Um, 
how does that jive with your uh, appreciation? I, th- I think I think money is is a fine motivation. I mean, that's a very simple, realistic motivation. There's a reason to want money, but like there's villains that um, they want to destroy everything, and what do you get from that? What do you end up with? You know, it it doesn't make any sense to me. Whereas I think um, Hans Gruber had very uh, basic um, a, a necessity, a motivation. He had a real want to just be rich and to retire and live on a beach on 20%. Right. And I, I, I can totally understand that. I think that's a great uh, motivation for a villain, you know. Right. And the way he went about it, you know, just I wasn't your cliche action villain that was just using brawn and and mustache twirling and, and villainy. He he had a, a very set plan of how to outsmart the bad uh, the good guys. Oh, I thought he was excellent. Right, so he's your favourite villain then? Hans Gruber comes I'd say first. So. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I think I've got I've got to go with Hannibal over Hans Gruber because he's a little bit more of a of a sophisticated character. But as you say, I can't uh, whereas I can Certainly understand Hans Gruber wanting to be to be rich. Um, I can't get behind wanting to eat flesh and, uh, <laughs> and have that sort of that sort of mind control over uh, mind control over people. But uh, that sort of brings me to the end of the the inside the role player studio. But there was one other thing that I wanted to discuss here before we before we signed off. Do you watch the Game of Thrones? Yes. And is does New Zealand have the second series yet? Have you guys onto the second series yet? Uh, no, it hasn't started here yet. I'm not actually sure when it is. Um, I may have to get it through other means, um, as I did on the first series. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, well, in that case, you won't you won't know about. There's a chap by the name of Neil Genslinger who writes for the New York Times, and they've got him in to review the second the second season. Now, this I don't think there's any. Is there any spoilers in this pub? I should qualify that with there are no spoilers for Season 2. If you've not seen Season 1, then you'll want to tune in again at 1 hour, 9 minutes and 53 seconds. But the reason why I'm going to read you a little bit from it is uh, the way that he portrays people that are interested in the, the story itself. So um, I'll read you a, a couple of snippets from it um, and then... I'll get your reaction. Um, the article's called, and for anybody that wants to follow along, it's a New York Times article, and I'll put a, a link in the, in the show notes, but uh, they just can't wait to be king is the name of the article. Midway through season one of Game of Thrones, viewers were treated to a particularly gruesome scene that showed a lovely princess named Daenerys Targaryen eating the raw heart of a horse. Turns out it was something of a metaphor for the series itself. In the second to last episode last season, um, Game of Thrones, in effect, ate its own heart by killing off its main and most noble character, Ned Stark, who was played by Sean Bean, perhaps the best-known actor in this cast of Thousands Extravaganza. So the question for HBO as, a, as Season 2 begins on Sunday is this. Who is going to replace Ned as a focus of the series? The answer, at least four uh, episodes in, is no one. The new season of the dense medieval fantasy set in a land called Westeros serves up a whole bunch of wartime posturing, a seemingly endless number of would-be rulers and the usual sex, and sometimes in the same scene, violence. But it sure doesn't give viewers much to latch onto. And then he goes on in a in 
very in details about all of the things that are the terrible about it. But then he comes to a bit which is the most, uh, which is the piece that I particularly want to uh, read for you here and get your reaction. Um, what Game of Thrones needs, if it is to expand its fan base beyond Dungeons and Dragons types, is what most of the United <laughs> States don't get uh, don't get this year as a hard winter. Life in this particular fantasy land consists of seasons of indeterminate length, and since the series began, there have been references to an impending winter of fearsome power. Now, there is also something else ominous brewing beyond the wall that protects the kingdom's northern border, and so on and so forth. But I, the particular line that I wanted to uh, that I, was, that I was interested in was this, if it wants to extend its fan base beyond the Dungeons and Dragons types. Um, <laughs> what, does that, what does that tell you about the uh, reviewer? What, what, do you, what do you think about the reviewer of the... I, I think he's got a few preconceptions about what that series is. I think Game of Thrones is, is excellent because it, it, there's nothing sacred in it. There's no character that can't die. And if you read the books, it's like that all the way through. Yes. And and I don't think it hangs off one person like he suggests. I don't think it hung on um, Sean Bean's character. Um, like Paul uh, Peter Dinklage's character, um, Tyrion Lannister, I think is just as magnetic as, as um, Sean Bean's character was. And even more so because he's... I think... Um, Ned, uh, Ned Stark was the moral compass of the show. Like he was a very straight-up man, but th- he's kind of almost one-dimensional in, in that way. Whereas I think you know um, Tyrion has essentially a good heart, but he's also quite cunning and underhanded. And there's there's a lot of characters that um, they can hang different stories on. I, d- I don't think it's just a simple one character story like he seems to suggest it might be well no that he, I think the impression that he gives is that he thinks that it should be it should yeah. be a, it yeah. should be a one dimensional uh, like there should be one hero and we should be uh, we should be following it through yeah I, I, that, that uh, Sean Bean Sean Bean's character in it um, Ned Stark is I, I think um, was so straight laced and one dimensional to offer a, a foil Against yeah. the uh, the other characters in the story to give people some kind of an idea about what is normal behaviour, so that you can gauge the behaviour of the other people in the story. Sean Bean is a lot like probably most of us would be in the same setting, and so by giving us that anchor point for our own uh, uh, how we think our own morals and our own standards would play in that setting, it gives you the ability to then extrapolate and or empathise with uh, the other characters that there are in there rather than thinking that everybody's just everybody's just, just weird. You know, having that straight man is an important um, it's an important idea I think in most in most stories. But um, I'm not the only one to mention this because as I was going through looking for references to this particular article, um, a lot of other people identified that, you know, there's no way that the that the Game of Thrones would still be on television if uh, if it only appealed to Dungeons and Dragons types. I don't think our lobby is that strong that we could um, create or oh, <laughs> support a support a story on a major network um, by by all of us tuning. And I think it requires you know a lot more than that for them HBO to use any of its time for a for for a story like that. But the other thing that uh, 
that I thought about uh, when I was reading this was, and it comes back to what we were talking about before about you know, sharing the fact that you're a role player with with somebody. This this article really brought home for me that even though there's not really any good reason why I should sort of feel that uh, frisson of, of shame when somebody asks about Dungeons and Dragons, um, because there's no really any reason to feel ashamed about it, except a fear perhaps of what other people might think. And, and reading this article certainly um, reinforced for me um, the idea that you know that. To the, to the majority of the public, at least of people of, uh, of our age, you know, this Dungeons and Dragons does still carry that, that stigma but for two reasons. First, this guy's obviously very dismissive of, of us as a group. But second of all, it's sufficiently well known by the demographic of the New York Times uh, to actually include a reference like Dungeons and Dragons types. You know, by him saying Dungeons and Dragons types, obviously he expects his readership to know what Dungeons and Dragons types and in inverted commas means. So, yeah, I don't think we're uh, I don't think we're out of the woods yet, Farrell, in terms of uh, big old. Well, I, I, I think we're getting there, though. I mean, fantasy really is that kind of thing is becoming a lot more mainstream thanks to Games of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, the upcoming Hobbit. You know, it's it's not it's not. Um, it doesn't have the stigma it used to, and and also stuff like you know World of Warcraft is however many eleven million players at its peak, you know that kind of role playing is is becoming more accepted to general populace, and and the ones that don't get it, I mean, who cares? <laughs> you don't want to know those kind of people anyway. Those sure. Sure. Well, thanks very much for taking the uh, time to talk with us uh, here this evening, Farrell. I uh, appreciate your uh, thoughts on um, on games like Fatality and the relative importance of, uh, of, of, <laughs> anal, of anal circumference. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to track down that game and actually have a good read of it. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds quite fun, actually. Yeah, it's provided it's tongue-in-cheek, I suppose. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, and like I say, thanks very much, Farrell, and uh, we'll get you back on the show another time. Okay, thanks very much, Dan. Ladies and gentlemen, Farrell Foster-Lynham. That's it for episode 8 of Penny Red. Sorry for the stuffy voice, but I've got a bit of a cold right now. And spoilers again regarding Hannibal. It was uh, inaccurate when I said that Hannibal had eaten part of his sister unknowingly. In fact, uh, his first foray into cannibalism was eating parts of some of the perpetrators who had killed and eaten his sister Misha. So, on that cheery note, until next week, keep talking the walk. Keep talking the walk.